Welcome to the First 100 Years podcast series. Join me, Lucinda Ackland, and guests as we reveal decade by decade the history and lives of the women in the legal sector over the course of the last century. The stories of the courageous pioneers and their struggle to practice law, the incredible rise in numbers of women who are now involved in all aspects of the legal sector, and discuss the factors affecting the equality of opportunity and advancement to the top of the profession. First 100 Years is a unique project set up to celebrate the history of women in law and inspire and promote opportunities for future generations. We'd like to thank Goldman Sachs and Linklaters who have generously supported this podcast series. In this episode, we're looking at the decade of the 2010s. At the start, women accounted for nearly 46% of solicitors with practising certificates, and at the bar, just over 34% of employed and self-employed barristers. Now, towards the end of the decade, and a 100 years following the Act that allowed women to join the profession, these figures have increased to around 51% for solicitors and 41% for barristers, amply demonstrating the interest and capability of women to work in the legal profession. However, the figures significantly dwindle at the higher levels, and this is despite the presence for several decades now of suitably qualified women of high calibre. Women make up some 30% of partners or equivalent for solicitors, but only 19% of equity partners in the top UK firms. At the bar, women account for a mere 16% of QCs and 32% of court judges. Interestingly, in the lower tiers, 46% tribunal judges are women, again suggesting that the issue there is that of promotion to the highest levels. With me today are three lawyers whose careers have taken them in different directions. Brenda Hale, Right Honourable Baroness Hale of Richmond, President of the Supreme Court. Patricia Scotland, the Right Honourable Baroness Scotland of Assal QC, Secretary General of the Commonwealth of Nations, and Diana Dennis-Smith, journalist, lawyer and award-winning CEO of Obelisk Support and founder of the First 100 Years Project. In this programme, we discuss what has been learnt by uncovering the stories of women in law and the light it sheds on current barriers to progress for women, the experience of women lawyers in public leadership roles, and what diversity means in achieving full equality of opportunity in the legal profession and the steps required for this to be achieved. Dana Dennis-Smith, in 2014 you were inspired to set up the First 100 Years Project after seeing a photograph of Dorothy Livingston as the lone woman partner amongst a sea of men. Five years later, we're now in the centenary year of the Sex Disqualification Removal Act 1919, which allowed the admission of women into public life in the professions. What were your aims for the project and how has it developed? Well, I started the project really to create a framework for women to find their place uh, in the history of the legal profession. I felt um, when I discovered the photograph that I didn't know much about our history, even though I was a practitioner myself. Um, and when I asked other women, they seemed to have the same gap in their knowledge. Um, and it felt to me that um, in the run-up to the uh, centenary, it is the perfect time to create this archive and really educate them about their past, inform them of what's been achieved, what other challenges we still face, and really leave a very good legacy for the next generation so they feel more connected to the profession. And how has it developed over the four years? 
Well, when we started, um, it was, a, if you like, a much smaller project. And really the idea was to create an oral video history archive to record all of our generation's pioneers, um, ma make mini documentaries of their lives and work to show, if you like, that women in law are a um, much more rounded um, personality, if you like. They can really talk about their um, how they've achieved what they've achieved in a more candid way. Um, and I really felt that kind of more humanistic um, side was missing from the profession, generally speaking. So it started with a video archive. We were aiming to have about 100 films by the end of the project. And then it expanded and expanded because I think we discovered how little information there was. So when we looked into the um, history of women, we tried to get a lot of the photographic records, some of the biographies of the women before. And we really realized actually there was so much more work to be done just to get them all into one central location. One of the interesting aspects of the First 100 Years project has been its unique way of encouraging women to write in and add their own experiences tell us about women lawyers who've inspired them, and also to showcase the achievements of young women lawyers today. Why do you consider this wider participation important? And what have been some of the examples arising out of the project that are significant to you? For me, I think this, uh, if you like, popular input is very important, not least because we didn't have a lot of material available. So we needed people to step forward and say, we have a photograph of one of the early pioneers and we are happy to share. So, for example, the family of Gwyneth Bebb have been extremely uh, generous and very, very useful to the project because suddenly we had this whole wealth of information that was stored somewhere that very few people had access to it. So really in order to inform the current generation to leave a really strong um, foundation for the next generation, you need to have the material and to share it. And I felt it's really important to collaborate with as many people as possible across the profession to be able to share what we all had and make it a bigger archive together. I mean, some of the, the stories of, if you like, totally unknown people, you know, such, such as the first woman to advise the Foreign Office, very hard to get this kind of information. They, are, they had such um, non-public lives. They were doing pioneering work, but we didn't really know. One of my favorite stories is the niece of one of the foreign office lawyers. And she was telling us about how she was inspired to become a lawyer. And she's an in-house lawyer now. And that they still have the collection of dolls that the, her aunt had collected from around her travels um, in the world. So that sounds like such an amazing, inspiring story. We've seen that despite decades of a healthy pipeline of junior women lawyers, the difficulties of promotion are revealed starkly in the statistics. In the last episode, we heard about the Law Society's recent survey, which revealed the need for the profession to address some key issues, with unconscious bias perceived to be the largest obstacle preventing women from reaching senior leadership positions. The gender pay gap, which for solicitors is nearly 12%, and the lack of flexible working opportunities. Diana Dennis-Smith, you've also recently published a survey which revealed the legal workplace still operates with values and expectations which often sustain male-orientated promotion pathways. What were the main findings? So we, we carried out a survey of our um, community, if you like, that we've picked up over the five years. We had about 750 women responding from across the profession. Again, it's always been our focus not to narrow into any one of the aspects of the profession, but really to bring people together around the table. Um, and really, I think some of the findings were quite surprising because um, to have something like 58% uh, of women to know 
either to have experienced themselves or know somebody who has been um, suffering from harassment at work. It's a really high percentage for 2019. So there's a, um, a lot of people that fear that if they do go forward and uh, speak up, uh, they will lose their careers in their firm. So they don't speak up, they don't take up um, these issues. So we maybe hope that um, things are changing. But when you survey the grassroots level, we're finding actually very little changes still uh, in place. So it's um, it's a mixed picture, really, um, I think, from our survey. Turning back now to the achievements of women in law in the decade of the 2010s, the most notable has to be the appointment of Lady Hale as the first woman president of the Supreme Court in 2017, placing you, Lady Hale, as the most senior woman judge in the United Kingdom. Born in 1945 in Leeds, you went to Girton College, Cambridge, as did a number of the other pioneering legal women. Your early professional life combined an academic career at Manchester University, together with practice as a barrister on the Northern Circuit. On the one hand, teaching students overarching principles and a framework of law, and then facing yourself the practicalities of pursuing and testing legal arguments in courts in representing the interests of your clients. What was that experience like and in the context of the 1960s and 70s? Well, of course, the 1960s and 70s were a very different time. There were very few women lawyers around. I was the second full-time permanent woman member of staff at the law faculty at Manchester University. I've been the second quite a lot of times and I'm always very grateful to the first. I was also the second member woman member of the chambers that I joined in Manchester um, and most of the chambers had got one woman uh, but the obviously the struggle was to become the second great tribute to those first women who didn't pull up the drawbridge behind them and didn't frighten the horses too much so that somebody like me could come along but doing both was hugely um, educational for me as you say you're trying to teach students what the general principles are, obviously applied to theoretical factual situations because that's the problem-solving approach of, of legal education. Uh, but it's very different going out into the big wide world, especially as I was as a very baby barrister going to county courts, magistrates' courts, occasionally the Crown Court, once the High Court, but doing pretty low-level stuff. And that's all about finding the facts. It's all about witnesses, examining, cross-examining, persuading magistrates and judges of this and that. It's very different from considering legal arguments uh, in front of students, but equally good for one. Lady Hale, you continued your joint academic and practising career, becoming a professor in 1986, appointed Queen's Counsel in 1989, and then sitting as a judicial officer, a recorder. A couple of years earlier, in 1984, you undertook other legal endeavours as an author publishing Women and the Law, together with Susan Atkins, and you were appointed the first woman and youngest law commissioner, leading the law commission in a number of law reform projects in the areas concerning children and mental health. We'll come back to your rise through the senior judiciary, but why did you want to work at the law commission, and how does that experience in terms of lawmaking and formulating legal principles compare with your experience as a judge? I always find it difficult when I'm asked what's the best job I've ever had, because I have enjoyed every single job that I have had. But as between being a justice of the Supreme Court or a law lord, uh, and being a law commissioner, it's quite a difficult choice. 
because as a law commissioner, it's a full-time job. Uh, you are part of a team of five commissioners and leading a team in your own specialist subjects. You're developing uh, proposals for the reform of the law. Uh, and in my field, we had a very broad canvas on which to paint. And I was extremely lucky to be able to review the whole of the law relating to the care and upbringing of children uh, in two separate projects, bring them both together in what became the Children Act 1989. Very hard not to think that that might have been my most important contribution to the development of the law, even more important than some of the landmark cases with which I've been concerned as a judge, because you can attempt to develop the whole of the relevant law. Cases are just about one case against the other case, and although it may have implications for all sorts of people, you can't take the all-round synoptic principled uh, view that you can take when you're trying to modernise, simplify, codify uh, a whole area of law. So, yes, it was a brilliant job. But I have to confess that I didn't stay in practice until 1989, I was appointed a QC as an employed barrister because I was then employed at the Law Commission. And I had in fact given up practice um, in the 1970s so that I could concentrate on my academic career. So it never crossed my mind that I would turn out to be any sort of judge. But one thing led to another. You rose through the judicial ranks and were appointed in 2004 as the first woman law lord at a time when the highest court in the land still sat in the Houses of Parliament. When the Supreme Court was established in 2009, you became the first woman justice of the court and its first woman president in 2017. You forged a career and excelled in a predominantly male-dominated and competitive environment in academia, government and the judiciary. What are your views about the causes of lack of diversity and the potential ways of increasing it? Well, different dimensions of diversity um, raise different problems. As far as women are concerned, we are, after all, half the human race, at least. We have been able to join the legal profession and hold public office for nearly 100 years. Uh, and yet it wasn't until the 1960s, that significant progress was made. I don't think I knew when I started out as a law student in the 1960s that there were only about 450 practising women solicitors out of about 16,000, something ridiculous like that. It wouldn't have put me off, I don't think, because I would just have thought, well, they need more and let's get on with it. Uh, but it will put off quite a lot of uh, people if they don't see other people like them in the room. It's enormously inspiring, I know, for people from all kinds of minority groups. Women are not a minority group, but we are in a way. Uh, if they walk into a room and they don't see anybody like them, but if they walk into a room and they see even one or two people like them, it's immensely inspiring. And so once you get a few in, it helps to encourage more. Uh, and we see now the figures... Uh, are hugely encouraging. We've we've got uh, more than 50% uh, qualifying as solicitors, about 50% qualifying as barristers, uh, and many going on into private practice. But what we still see is a huge falling off uh, at certain levels of seniority, 
or women not going into independent practice, which is the visible embodiment to many people of the legal profession. And they're not doing that because it's not a particularly sensible way of life. I mean, in major solicitors' firms, the uh, fact that people have to be at work sometimes 24-7, certainly very, very long hours, uh, in order to cater, it is thought for the international clients. And at the bar, you have to be prepared to drop everything and go anywhere, certainly in the early days. You don't know necessarily what you're going to be doing from one day to the next. Uh, it's not easy to, to run a life like that. And so a lot of very clever women uh, either drop out for a while in order to have uh, their families or they move sideways into things like uh, in-house counsel, uh, the government legal service, the public sector generally, all very good jobs. And one of the things that we can do to improve the diversity of women is to encourage women who are not in independent practice at the bar to think of themselves as potential judges and put themselves forward. Uh, but we also have to accompany that with good assessment tools to be able to work out who's going to be good at it and who might not be so good at it. Uh, and these are challenges on both sides. Um, but I think that's one way of doing it. And a good omen is that the tribunal's judiciary is by and large, roughly reflective of the gender and ethnic profile of people of that age in the working population. So they've done pretty well. And they've done it by encouraging people to put themselves forward and by uh, working out good ways of assessing potential. And if the court's judiciary could do the same, we'd make a lot more progress. I'd like to turn to you now, Secretary-General. You're another woman of many firsts. The first black woman ever to become Queen's Counsel in 1991, the first black woman to be appointed Deputy High Court Judge, Recorder and Master of Middle Temple, and the first black woman to become Minister in the UK Government in 1999 at the Foreign Office and made a Privy Councillor in 2001 when she was appointed a Minister in the Lord Chancellor's Department. It's a meteoric rise in a profession that's predominantly white, from a narrow band of education and background, and at the top, male. Your father moved to the UK from Dominica when you were two years old, one of 12 children growing up in East London in the 60s and 70s, in a Britain which had limited perceptions about the role for women and about black people too. Can you look back and tell us how you came to be a barrister? And is it possible to join the dots and find your guiding principles? I think the real reason I became a barrister was because I always wanted to uh, be the voice of the voiceless. I was one of those why, why birds, you know, why is this and why is that? And it was really very uh, confusing when I was younger because at home, my father treated both the seven boys and the five girls absolutely equally as did my mother. They expected us to achieve exactly uh, what my uh, brothers did. And yet, outside of my home, there was a real difference in perception as to what women could do or should do, and indeed what black people could do or should do. So it was interesting when I said that I wanted to become a lawyer that um, it was met with amazement. 
by schools and teachers and others because they thought, well, this just isn't for you. And they were terrified that if I tried something that I they believed I had no expectation of achieving, that I'd be disappointed. They were always trying to preserve me from disappointment. And I basically thought that um, anything that was worth doing was worth doing. So I had a go. Despite initial difficulties in getting tenancy and having to work in a shop to support yourself, your practice grew and you became the first black woman and youngest ever Queen's Council in 1991. What work were you doing and how did you perceive the experience of other women and those from ethnic minorities working in the legal profession at the time? Well, when I came to the bar, um, there were only about 7% of the profession were women and uh, 0.01% were black women. And I was told that uh, because of the two impediments that I had, um, that I would find it extremely difficult to get tenancy at all. And indeed, that uh, because I hadn't gone to Oxbridge, that would be another hurdle. Um, But what I found was that there was, weren't any professions at that time where it was an advantage to be black and female. And the law, therefore, wasn't very different from all the others. Um, and it was a challenge. It was a challenge to get tenancy. It was a challenge before that to get pupillage. And the way in which people saw women in those days were very different. I'll never forget my clerk, a really redoubtable uh, person who actually did a lot to assist me, saying um, when he was referring to me, well, sir, the fact is, sir, that the only reason you shouldn't go to uh, court, sir, is if you're dead, sir, and then I will look and see if you're in your coffin, sir. And his idea of treating everyone equally was to call everyone sir. Um, So those were really difficult uh, days, although he was actually a remarkably kind person. The work that I ended up doing was a lot of public sector work. I did a lot of administrative, um, basically was a civil practice to start off with, but ended up doing a lot on children and children's rights because I became engaged in a number of public inquiries about children and public inquiries Uh, led me, I suppose, to doing more and more work in terms of vulnerable adults. And so I moved from a general civil practice more and more to become an international law specialist in children's work, child international child abduction and public um, abuse, child abuse inquiries. Turning back to the current decade, we saw two judicial appointments of particular note. In 2015, Dame Bobby Chima Grubb was the first Asian woman High Court judge, and in 2016, Dr Victoria McLeod, the first openly transgender woman, was appointed Master of the Senior Courts, Queen's Bench Division of the High Court. Earlier this year, it was announced that in 2021, Stephanie Boyce, the current Deputy Vice President of the Law Society, will be the sixth woman and the first black president of the Law Society. Dame Bobby Chima Grubb has talked about the perception gap of ability that requires constant pushing against stereotypes of social class, ethnicity or gender. And Dame Linda Dobbs, the first ethnic minority woman High Court judge in 2004, has said that knowing she would be the first black High Court judge, she thought that would open the floodgates. Again, progress continued to be very slow. 
However, since reforms to the Queen's Council and judicial appointment processes aimed at widening the sources of talent, we have seen some progress. For example, Elizabeth Johnson was the first chartered legal executive of two judges with such a background appointed in 2019. However, this low progress for diversity is still criticised and calls for diversity to made a clear objective in the appointment process continue to be made. Secretary-General, you actually moved away from the judicial path to a political legal role in government, achieving another first as the Attorney-General for England and Wales and the Advocate-General for Northern Ireland in 2007, a highly visible public role. Since 2016, you have been on the international stage as the first woman Secretary-General of the Commonwealth of Nations, a voluntary association of 53 member states with 2.4 billion people which is now celebrating its 70th year. You head a unique alliance of countries collaborating to tackle crucial matters of global importance such as climate change, poverty, trade matters and interestingly women's rights, particularly domestic violence. To what extent have you, as the first woman in such a visible public leadership role, have been able to place what some might see as a domestic personal issue onto the global stage? And why is it important alongside other worldwide concerns? Well, I think the most important thing to understand about uh, violence against women is that it's not personal, it's international. It's one in three women in our world today are affected by domestic violence. And it's the greatest cause of morbidity in women and girls. When I was the minister in the UK, we assessed in 2004 that it cost our country £23 billion a year. And we were able to reduce that by 64% and we were able to save £7.1 We know that if we are to have a truly wealthy world, if we are to meet the sustainable development goals, women have to be part of that. And where you have women disabled, disadvantaged and undermined by that level of violence, that is something which is of pivotal global importance. And so the equality that women need is actually a human right. I'd like to discuss further your perspectives of women in the public eye in senior leadership roles. Lady Hale, you've been described in a recent Gresham lecture by Professor Joe de la Hunty QC as an icon, the law student's Beyoncé, appearing in Vogue as a judge on MasterChef and as Judge Brenda in a children's book about the Supreme Court, generating much comment in the recent Supreme Court landmark constitutional case, as much, for some people, about your brooches emulated online as a spider emoji, as the decision itself. Such media coverage of a Supreme Court judge is unprecedented. What do you make of how your role has evolved into a much greater visible public figure? And how would you describe the impact of being a woman on your legal career? Well, those are two very separate questions. Uh, Dealing with the first, we don't set out to be celebrities or uh, Beyoncé's or anything else like that. Uh, But some of the things that we do inevitably do thrust us into the public eye. The fact that our proceedings are broadcast, either online or on television, has meant that people 
anywhere in the world can watch what goes on in the Supreme Court. We think that's a beneficial thing. It enables them to understand much more what we do and how we do it. Uh, but it does mean that we are known to a much greater audience than we would have been when we were hiding away in Committee Room 1 in the House of Lords. Also, we regard it as pretty important to be able to uh, educate um, and inform uh, the wider public about the importance of law, the rule of law, access to justice, all the things for which we stand in the court. And that is why uh, I was encouraged to do such things as be interviewed for Vogue, which was very exciting. Also, the MasterChef appearance, that was a special lunch to celebrate 100 years since women got the vote. So the consumers of the lunch, I wasn't actually a judge, I was one of the consumers of the lunch, uh, were all women who'd reached prominence in a variety of, of uh, fields of life, which was great. And the children's book is there to raise money for the Legal Action Group, which is a very worthwhile uh, access to justice charity, but it's also there to try and educate primary school children uh, about the law as well as tell them my story uh, as well. So it's, a, it's really good. Uh, thoroughly recommend it. Um, buy it for your grandchildren for Christmas is what I say to all the people of my generation. So those are things that we've done um, not to big up me as a personality, but to try and improve public understanding of the nature of law. As far as the impact of being a woman on my legal career is concerned, I often say that I think I probably benefited from being around at the time that I was around, you know, starting in the 1960s and working my way up the system at a time when a lot of people thought we did not have enough women around. Certainly when I went to the Law Commission, I think that they were quite keen, if they could, to appoint the first woman Law Commissioner. They wouldn't have appointed anybody they didn't think was up to it, but they were quite keen to have one. Uh, and I think the same was true when I was appointed a High Court judge. Um, when I was appointed, there were only six of us out of more than 100 men. I think they were quite keen to have a few more women. So it's been on the whole not a disadvantage. And I haven't taken the view that I should be worried about that. I've taken the view that it's very important that women allow themselves uh, to take appointments like that and make the best of them that they can. Because if we don't do it, others aren't going to do it. And it's really important. So it's not been a bad thing to be a woman. Donna Dennis-Smith, you've reached public visibility in the media speaking about women in the legal profession through your role as founder of the First 100 Years Project, but also as a CEO of Obelisk Support, a company offering flexible opportunities for work within the legal profession. What is your view about women in the public view? Well, again, I think very similar to um, Lady Hale, I didn't set out to create a platform for myself, part of these projects. I was just trying to um, address what I considered problems in the system. 
One of them was the attrition of women in law through lack of opportunities for them to work around their families, which is why I set up my business. Um, and then lack of knowledge around the history of women in law and creating this kind of more positive mood around the celebrations of the centenary and really making it count um, and not letting it kind of be played down um, uh, for for the current generation. So in a way, I created platform uh, two platforms for other women to take the center stage. So really, it's great to be a founder of something that resolves a problem that other people might not have an idea to resolve. But then there is this kind of challenge, and I think it's um, quite common with women. How do you own that centre stage once you've created something that's successful? And how do you participate in the platform yourself? And I think um, it's quite an interesting situation to find yourself in. I, I find it an interesting experience because um, you do become a role model, which you don't expect because you were creating a platform for a lot of other role models and you have to become very aware about you know what you communicate and uh, remain always positive and make sure that people feel um, there is a very strong future for them really and I think that kind of message around positive stories has been lacking uh, even in within my professional lifetime if you like and um, that was really important to me to kind of really flip it and say everything you want to do it is possible. I wonder whether looking back at the a relatively rapid change in the last 100 years in the status of women in society and whether that's created an additional tension of uncertainty for some women in terms of professional confidence and this has created a reticence for some in putting themselves forward for the top jobs. Lady Hale, do you have a thought as to whether that might be one of the contributing factors? I'm not sure I'd say relatively rapid. I think it's been pretty slow basically. Uh, but I think there's quite a lot of evidence that not only in the law, but in many walks of life, uh, women are more reticent about putting themselves forward than men are. Uh, it tends to be said, you know, a woman looks at a job description with 10 person qualities in it and says, well, I can only do five of those, so I won't apply. And a man looks at it and says, I can do five of those, so I will apply. So an awful lot has got to be done to encourage women to put themselves forward for the things that they really would like to do uh, and, and to work on their confidence and ability to do that. And that's one of the things that Don has been trying very hard to uh, encourage and the rest of us are trying that uh, too. But it's also, as I said earlier, pretty important that they can see other women there uh, because that's going to encourage them that I always say to people, look, if I can do it, you can do it. It just needs to have a concatenation of circumstances that get you uh, where you happen to be. So. Donna, do you have anything you want to add to that? Um, well, I think we are in a very interesting moment in history because I think if you look at this kind of historic cycle every 50 years, you kind of have a you know big emergence of if you like, empowerment of women. And we're in that kind of moment now. And to me, what I'm really keen to do is to keep the flame up at maximum rather than allowing it to peter away like it's happened in, in the past. And I think for me, um, encouraging women to stay in, being connected to the workplace, demand the change in the working culture that is fitting their life and what they want to achieve at home. But also I think, you know, it's an interesting time for women to really enter the public space, which is new really in terms of 
numbers. I mean, you look at the parliament, you know, you, we have more women uh, than we had 50 years ago, but still maybe not enough because they're not half of parliament. So in, in different spheres of work and, you know, in the in business as well, you have this kind of, you know, slight kind of high number of women that can really create a critical mass and really create a different, rewrite history, if you like, for women to feel they can succeed. Secretary General. I think... Um, the change hasn't actually been rapid enough. I I know that there are challenges because um, there are significant differences in terms of women's expectation of how their lives will go and those of men. And the systems that we have created to date tend to be predicated on the male model of progression as opposed to the female model. I think also women have a tendency, and these are all generalizations, to want to get things done. And it's about the doing of the and achieving of the outcome and not who does it. And that is a different approach to the approach taken by many men. And we have to change our response to create an environment which will be more conducive to an equal participation. So I think, bearing in mind that change hasn't happened, it's quite difficult. Um, Childcare still tends to fall, the majority, the burden on women, as opposed to men. Women are still the ones who will take time out of their uh, profession to physically have the children, give birth to the children. And so I think this rapid change that we've seen has been slower than most people would have wanted and needs to get faster. But in getting faster, we really have to adapt to the reality that there are women and men in this world and that the patterns we need to create and the systems we need to create need to have the capacity to respond and enable both to give of their best. Do you think there's a similar pressure from people from ethnic minority backgrounds, again, who feel they have to do, the, as you say, the 101% before they try? But that was the reality. Yeah. I was brought up to believe you could never be as good as. Mm. You had to be five times as good as to get half as far. And that's just how things were. And you had to accept that you were going to face those challenges and deal with it. And if you couldn't deal with it, it would be an additional monkey on your back. And so I think that isn't people's perception. It was their reality. And that reality is changing. But certainly um, when I came to the bar, when I wanted to become a member of the profession, it was made absolutely clear to me that being as good as would meant that I would never get in and I would never succeed. You had to be much better than the average. And I look forward to the day, actually, when there will be as many incompetent women in jobs as they are men, because then we'll know we have equality. One of the things that I've been struck by in listening to people over these series is they're saying that women are typically over-mentored um, but not um, sponsored enough. And it's quite a um, significant aspect that people, something that people can do, not every day, but in their daily lives. Think about how you can promote 
people say ask for their opinions and suggest and put people forward so that was something i thought was a really good idea for senior people to bear in mind i think that's for sure but also that requires management courage which sometimes is lacking so we need people to feel that they can have the courage to support people with you know potential and stick with them and really grow them and include women in that group not just men We've touched on discriminatory practices in the legal profession in this series and the issue of bullying and harassment has received increasing prominence in this and other sectors highlighted by the Me Too campaign. And recently an app has been launched to be used anonymously to record instances of such behaviour affecting barristers so that the Bar Council can collect data without people risking sanctions for reporting. In a profession that's meant to be upholding equality and justice, how is it that we still have such toxic behaviour and what can be done about it? Dana? I would say really what will help is um, the diversity of people that are coming in because if you have people that come from very set types of schools or colleges, then there's not enough spread in the base of the profession. Also, obviously, the pupil-master-pupil relationship can leave more space for unequal treatment. So really having a more transparent, more professionalised chambers environment can really help people of all backgrounds uh, feel they can um, fit in and succeed. But definitely the initiative they've put in recently around anonymous um, reporting is definitely a step forward. Now how we interpret the data and what we do with it is, you know, the the kind of the business world's kind of um, uh, question is, you know, what do you put in is what you get out. So we need good quality data to get good information and um, analyze it. So it's the beginning of the right, um, you know, kind of activity. But it has to challenge some of the very old traditions of the bar itself, you know, the relationships and how they're being managed day to day. And you need a lot of policies and enforcement in that space. You also need people uh, who are prepared politely to call out unacceptable behaviour. I heard a lovely story from a law student from a university which will remain nameless, but it's a rather traditional one. And she said she was surrounded by um, public school boys with a particular attitude. Uh, And her technique when somebody said something completely unacceptable was to say, could you say that again? And they somehow found that having to say it again made them realise that what they'd said was unacceptable. And we have to find a lot of tips for people as to how to handle unacceptable behaviour and not be afraid to call it out without necessarily making formal complaints. Um, I think it's better if you can to try and handle the situation uh, yourself and move the organisation on or the chambers on to a, a different attitude things. Long way to go though. Yeah. I think the thing that we all have to recognise is this isn't a problem for the bar, it's the problem for society. This behaviour is behaviour in society and that our profession is no exception. I hope it happens less often, but um, I'd be surprised if that was the case. This is human behaviour. And we are all trying to address that behaviour. We're trying to change it. We're trying to give people more um, confidence to call out in relation to it. And we're trying to make sure that those who perpetrate it 
are dealt with and dealt with robustly. So I don't think that this is something that we should be ashamed of, these attempts that we are making. I think it's really important, if you look at what the bar has done, that we've called this out, just as we've tried to address the issues in terms of racism, in terms of sexism, in terms of discrimination on any other ground. Remember, when I came to the bar, uh, it was still totally unacceptable for people to be gay. They would never acknowledge it. And it was seen that if you were gay, you would not get preferment. You would not become a judge. You would not be invited to the right parties. You wouldn't be able to go into the inner sanctum. All of that has changed, but it has only changed because we've addressed it and addressed it robustly. And I'm quite proud of what the legal profession has done in that regard, because we are the guardians of the rule of law. And if we aren't going to address it and root it out, then who is? The famous quote of the women's liberation movement in the 1970s was the personal is political. Given that women's lives today are so complex in terms of the demands made on their time and commitments, how have you all made it work for you? Secretary General. Well, I think it's been a real challenge because women who want to become professionals and who also want to have a family and who also want to be involved in uh, social third sector type charities and churches, there's a huge amount on your plate. And actually, it's quite interesting because the people who genuinely help women to perform their roles is other women needing nannies, needing help uh, at home and support from mothers and support from friends. All of that is in the main, not exclusively, because men, of course, assist too. But the majority of that is being supported by other women doing uh, supportive roles to enable the women who uh, work full time in a profession to do that work. So it is an interconnected position. And I think it's finding ways to honour that. Uh, and it's not easy. I, I don't know anyone who in, who in truth will say it's all a piece of cake. It's not. I think it's always a struggle. Yes, it's very difficult, isn't it, to have both a private life and a public life. It's difficult for men too. Uh, and my greatest hope is that the young men that I encounter very frequently tend on the whole to understand what we're talking about and they tend to sympathise and they too tend to want a better work-life balance than they've been brought up to uh, think was the right thing for them to do. However, once they get into the workplace, it's much more difficult for a man to say, I want to take uh, parental leave, I want to have a proper holiday with my family, I don't want to be staying until 11 o'clock at night, much harder for them to say it than it is actually for a woman. <laughs> so we need to have equality of the sexes, you know, equality for men as well as for women. Donna? In my personal experience is that I stepped out of the legal practice in terms of how I found my own balance. I set up my own business, I had a family running along the business, and I created a culture within which I could fit and I could run the whole project, my business and my family all together. 
it's a lot of hard work and a lot of, you know, um, having to have somebody at home that is supportive and is not competing with you, which you can have um, a lot of couples that are maybe high flying, if you like. Um, each one of them can start selecting one of them out of the, um, the professional life. So I think I was fortunate that I had a husband who took the view that whichever one of us succeeded was good enough for him. You know, it was a good result for the family. But it is um, a constant... Um, effort to try to balance things. A previous Supreme Court judge, Lord Sumption, in 2015, cautioned against rushing to put more women in senior judicial positions, lest it cause, quotes, appalling consequences in other directions, saying that such a move could put off talented male candidates and destroy the delicate balance of the legal system. He suggested that it could take another 50 years to achieve gender equality within the senior judiciary, arguing that in historical terms this was a very short time and that it has to happen naturally. This appears to sum up the concerns expressed about imposing quotas which could affect the quality control of candidates. What are your views about this approach? And is there another way to speed up progress? Lady Hale. Well, I'm not in favour of quotas uh, for the fairly obvious reason that even the best people who are appointed under a quota system will worry in case they've only been appointed because of the quota and that won't be good for them. But on the other hand, I am in favour of targets. Uh, I think a good target for the judiciary uh, at all levels would be 60-40 either way. 50-50 uh, would be great, but 60-40 either way would, would be good. I disagree profoundly with Lord Sumption's prediction of appalling consequences. Uh, he had two consequences uh, of a greater push to gender equality in the judiciary. The first was that it would put off the best women because they would be afraid that they had only been appointed because they were women. Well, an entirely merit-based uh, appointing process ought to reassure them, along with the reassurance that comes from the rest of us that they have been appointed for the right reasons. But his second reason was that it would put off the best men because they would be afraid of being discriminated against. And I'm afraid that always makes me laugh because if that had put off the best women from putting themselves forward, we wouldn't have any women uh, on, in senior judicial positions. So for men just to feel slightly less entitled than they have traditionally felt seems to me to be no bad thing. As far as his prediction about uh, how long it would take, if you take the judiciary as a whole um, to get gender equality at the present rate of progress, it would take about 14 years. So he's way off on that. At senior levels, it might take a little bit longer, but there is really no reason to suppose it would take as long as 50 years. Um, and I have no idea what other delicate balance he might be thinking about. Donna, do you but have a... I, for me, I, I see this, again, this moment in history, very similar to the um, 1919, actually, because then it was just um, an access point, which was the point of accessing the profession as a whole. To me now, it's about accessing the senior ranks and not just in the judiciary, but across the board, um, you know, QC level and also at law firms. Um, and I think maybe the timings on that side of the profession are longer because they are very um, self-regulated organisations, obviously private sector, and they can do whatever they want in theory uh, and probably in practice as well. So I am much more inclined to support quotas for a limited period of time simply because I feel we have 
so many talented women that will never get their chance. Not because I want them to feel labelled as the quota generation, but I think they are perfectly capable to get the jobs, but they need the jobs to exist for them. Um, and I don't really know how we get them to access that seniority if we just leave it to the profession to self-regulate. They just won't do it. So I'm thinking maybe quotas is the only way, and I'd love some economists to come forward and, and model it for us and show us what would be achievable. But I feel women are incredibly talented and they've achieved so much actually so quickly the least of my worries that they should feel they are quarter generation i think they just need to go for the jobs and uh, and rise up and um, maybe quarters will be helpful in that context well they certainly need to go for the job mm. and rise up and i tend to agree with you that it's a greater problem in the solicitor's profession because they are private mm. industry uh, and they are much less public and visible in what they're doing than the independent bar and the judiciary are. So you're right, there's a job of work to be done there. But I still don't think quotas is the way to do it. <laughs> the, the third way, we must find it. Yeah. Well, actually, I have to be frank, I'm rather surprised and disappointed um, that uh, Jonathan Sumption should say such a thing. He's a very bright man. Because of this reason, if you think about what has happened in the last 50 years, you see equal numbers of very talented men and very talented women coming into the profession. The standard that you have to attain professionally is very high indeed to survive at the bar, particularly because you are a self-employed person. So unfortunately, if you don't have the requisite skills, your practice tends to dwindle. So the women we now have come coming forward are as talented and as uh, committed to their profession as the men. And therefore, I would rather have thought Jonathan would have been surprised that there wasn't 50-50 by now, because we have had this talent. And I, I'm afraid I don't quite understand what he means by appalling consequences. Uh, does he mean it would be appalling to have 50% men and 50% women because you were doing it on talent? I, I'm a bit perplexed by that. And thinking about the concept of quotas or targets, um, that's typically given as a solution to leapfrog over historic structural issues. Do you have a particular view about the use of those? Well, I think right now, if you look at the numbers of talented men and women, uh, if you were to take out any improper bias and improper discrimination, I think the likelihood is you would have 50-50 because the people coming forward that I see in our profession are equally good, men and women, and there are brilliant men. I mean, truly extraordinary men, but there are equally brilliant, extraordinary women. So I think it's probably a good idea to have a target, a target of 50-50, because that would reflect the pool. I mean, I was one of those who... Uh, when I first came into the profession in 1977, um, bought the idea that we had to wait 
uh, because there were only 7% of the uh, profession who were female, and that's both at the bar and solicitors. So, of course, there would need to be time as more women came into the profession, as more women became experienced. And we have waited because uh, we I've now been in this profession for more than 40 years. So I think we've waited long enough. And the time is now because we have the talent and we have the pool. And I think having a target of 50-50 is a perfectly respectable thing to aspire for. We've come a long way. The fact that there's 50-50 basically coming into the profession now, that we have so many um, judges and that the most senior judge in the land, Brenda Hale, is a woman, is an extraordinary thing to have happened over such a short time and a woman who has herself not been at the bath throughout that whole time, who had an academic uh, part. I mean, all of that, I think, is really quite remarkable. However, there's so much more for us to do because a 100 years after joining the profession, when perhaps some of us would have thought 100 years was enough for 50-50, we still have a way to go. But I am optimistic that the talent and the energy and the commitment of our profession, both men and women, the fact that our profession are there to uphold the rule of law, good governance, I hope we will be part of the change agents which make equality happen, not just for our profession, but actually for our world. It's the responsibility of we lawyers to deliver and help to deliver that fairness. And I hope we'll do it. 100 years after the passing of the Sex Disqualification Removal Act 1919, there is much to marvel at the progress women have made in the legal profession. And firsts are still being created, such as Dame Victoria Sharp's appointment as the first woman president of the Queen's Bench Division of the High Court earlier this year. The main issue facing women is no longer entry into the profession, but the structural and cultural norms that have an impact on retention, promotion to senior positions and work allocation, creating barriers to achieve a more equitable legal profession. The challenge for us all is to address these structural inequalities and work together to enable women to pursue their careers to the top. Thank you very much to our contributors today, Lady Hale, Secretary-General and Dana Dennis-Smith. You can listen again and find the other episodes from the series on iTunes or Spotify or from our website where there are more resources and you can sign up to the newsletter and follow us on social media at First Hundred Years. We're delighted to announce too the publication of our new illustrated book, First Hundred Years of Women in Law, with many more stories, timelines and photographs bringing this untold history to life. £2 from every copy sold will be donated to support Legal Action Group and you can order a copy through the website. Finally, we'd like to thank Goldman Sachs and Linklaters who have generously supported the production of this podcast series. Thank you for listening and goodbye. Goodbye.